Okay, hold on a minute. I got to make a phone call here. So if you guys just want to hold on, you don't mind, right? I'm hoping she doesn't pick up. Let's just see what happens here. You don't mind, right? Take a phone call, just a short phone call. Just hold on. Wait for it. Hey, this is Hope. I can't get to the phone right now, which is weird because I don't have a wife, but give me a call back in a few minutes. I'm sure I'll answer. Every time I call my daughter hoping she doesn't answer the phone, that's what I hear. I can't come to the phone right now because I don't have a life. Mike, you have a life? She was recording that, and did you hear Hope? Did you hear, did you hear Lois's voice? Yes, you do, he said. <laughs> yes, you do. Okay, that's the message. You have a life. Let me tell you how that's going to work, all right? So, so some, of you, some of you say your outlines are hard to follow. How many of you have said that to your friends and neighbors? Come on, be honest. I hear these things. Little birds bring this to me. The outline. Okay, so write this down. Here's the outline from a message today. Go on. Write it down. And if you want to, if you want to. Point number one. Give me three points. <laughs> three points to the message. Okay. I'll just give you these, all right? So you can think about them in their different ways. Number one, if you, number one is what to do if you want to have a meaningful life. Just call that point one. What to do if you want to have a meaningful life, which is kind of like saying how to have a life. And this is going to be G, what Jesus said about how to have a life. So um, that's the point number one, how to have a life. Okay? Point number one. And point number two is going to be have a plan to obey Jesus' command. Have a plan to obey Jesus' command. When I say this stuff, it's going to make, all, it's going to make sense then. And then number three, this is just overly simple, but number three is like don't quit. This will work. Don't quit. Okay, there it is. There's the three. This is kind of an odd outline, but it just is what it is, okay? Number one, if you want to have a meaningful life, what to do if you want to have a meaningful life. Number two is have a plan to obey Jesus' command. And number three is like, don't quit because it will work. Trust me, don't quit. So those, those, I'm going to hang the message on those three things unless I change my mind today, all right? So let's talk about that. So this woman, her name was Dawn, and a co-worker invites her out for lunch. True story. Dawn goes out to eat with her co-worker, and they're sitting there at lunchtime, and Dawn is just enjoying the meal, and then her co-worker says, let me tell you why we're having lunch today. She said, I like you, uh, and, and I am a Christian. And she says to Dawn, and I decided that what I want to do is I want to take everybody, all of my co-workers out for lunch one on, and talk to them one-on-one -on -one and, and explain to them about how I became a Christian and encourage them to be a follower of Jesus too. And she said, so Dawn, that's why I brought you out for lunch today. And then Dawn, who is far from God, begins to cry. And then she, her friend says, I'm so sorry. I, I didn't mean to upset you. What did I say? She says, oh, you... No, you didn't upset me. It's just that I have wandered so, I'm a Christian, but I have wandered so far away from God. Well, they, had, they finished their lunch, and then this Christian gal says to Don, let me give you some advice. 
She said, what kind of church were you raised in? And she said, well, it was Baptist. And her friend said, I'm sorry. No, no. <laughs> said it was Baptist. And she says, okay. She says, here's what I want you to do, Don. And this is just sweet. She says, get in the car on Sunday morning. Get dressed for church. Get in the car and go find a Baptist church. So Don, in the sweet providence of God, gets in her car on that Sunday morning, and she drives to our little church that we had started in Knox County, Ohio, and she drives up to our little building, and she comes in with her baby. And she stayed with us the whole time we were there because somebody invited her out for lunch and cared about her soul. Isn't that cool? Wouldn't you love to be that kind of somebody, the kind of person that God uses in that way? Here's, here's my theory. If you would live like that, then you would have a life, wouldn't you? But don't take my word for it. Take your Bibles, and I want you to see uh, a teaching about Jesus, a teaching of Jesus. It's in, it's in Matthew in chapter, chapter 8, Matthew chapter 8. And I'll show you three or four different things. A couple of them are unique and special, like times when Jesus was teaching something. In this case, Jesus would frequently take his, his followers, his disciples, away for a retreat. And he went up to this place called Caesarea Philippi. And if you've ever been to the Holy Land, you recognize this is a very, a very unique place. It's a beautiful place. It's way up in the north. There's abundant water there. Most of, the, most of the land of the Bible doesn't have abundant water. This is a place with abundant water. It's kind of the headwaters of the Jordan. It's also a place that has a unique rock formation that has spiritual significance attached to it. There's a big gapping hole there that the pagans say it's the very jaws of death. It's the mouth of hell. It's the gates of hell. They call it the gates of hell. And they do things there that I am not going to talk about in church, right? Really filthy kinds of things they did there that we just don't want to talk about in church, but vile kinds of things people do when they wander far from God. That's what they did in Caesarea Philippi. And Jesus is taking a retreat there. It was common to take a retreat there because it was such a beautiful place, kind of like going to Vegas, I suppose. Jesus takes the disciples to Vegas. Yeah, yeah. And he's like, here, welcome to the jaws of death, the gapping mouth of hell. And he basically says, and this is the short Cliff Notes version, we ain't scared, boys. We are not scared. I, the, I'm going to build my church on the backs of regular guys like you, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And the guys are like, little old me? How's that going to work? And very simply, Jesus is going to teach them that they just have to lay down their lives for, the, for Jesus' sake and the gospel. So that, that kind of sets it up, right? And so you have here in Mark and chapter 8 and verse 34, And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, which is kind of vague and poetic. What's that mean? In another place in Luke, he said, take up your cross daily. So if take up your cross, you know, the cross was an instrument of what? Execution, right? So, so, and Jesus hadn't died on the cross when he said this, right? So they probably weren't thinking about him dying on the cross so much as they were thinking about people who were executed. So he's saying, if you want to follow me, this is going to be, well, like going to your death. You're going to have to be willing to die. But then when he said, uh, take up your cross daily, he's implying what? That you, maybe you won't physically die, but it'll be like you just keep laying down your life. And then he says, you know, if you want to have a life, 
You've got to lose your life. It's a kind of a paradox. That's what he says right here. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And whoever would save his life will lose it. This is one of those kind of mysterious, enigmatic statements that Jesus made. It's hard to, hard to untangle, right, initially. Whoever would save his life will lose it. Mark eight thirty-five. Whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life... For my sake and the gospels will save it. Now, the same story is told in Matthew 16 with a lot more detail. But there's a phrase in this that's not included in Matthew 16. We know that Jesus said it because it's included here. He said, if you want to have a life, if you try to have a life by like seeking pleasure or wealth or fame or the kinds of things that people do to have a life, you're going to lose your life, he said. But if you lay down your life or you lose your life for, what did he say in the phrase? For what? For If you lose your life for what? For Specifically in verse 35 it says for my sake and what? Now that's really helpful that the gospel is in there. Because it gives us a little clarity, a little focus on this. How can I have a life? Well, let's do it this way. Who is the most fulfilled who had the most meaningful life of any man who ever had a life? Come on, it's, it's the word you always say in Sunday school. Jesus did. Jesus had the most meaningful life anybody ever had. Who had the most significant life anybody ever lived? Jesus did. Meaning, significance. He would have made it all the way to the top of Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of needs. He would have been the most self-actualized human being ever to walk on planet Earth. Jesus Christ was put together. Amen? So he had a life, would you say? And he says, so we're taking advice from our Savior Jesus. And he says, if you want to hit on all eight cylinders, if you want to live the way human beings are made to live, then, then sacrifice for my sake and the ministry of the gospel, for the, for the fellowship of the gospel, for the work of the gospel. In other words, Jesus came into this world to do what? To save sinners and gather men and women, people for his name. Out of every tribe and tongue and nation, he came to gather people for his name out of every tongue and tribe and nation. And then they're going to be around the throne forever in the glory of God, in unspeakable beauty and peace and order and honor to God and glory to God and great joy and great happiness and great faith. And you want to be included in that, right? And you want to include, you want to invite others into that. And if you live, he said, for that, for the sake of the gospel, then you are going to have a life now, a lot of times pastors kind of we kind of goof this up it's our job pastors elders and leaders in the church to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry to get people into the gospel work but a lot of times what we do is we're pitching it kind of like you have to be a cheap used car salesman for jesus or a vacuum cleaner salesman for jesus with kind of a plaid jacket and like with what with no listen switch on you right and a handful of you are going, that's me, dude, let's do it. That's kind of me. I'm like, I can do that, door to door. You want to go door to door? I'll go door to door. It, it means I get to meet a lot of people, you know. But, but then there are only a handful of people that are that weird, right? Most people aren't that weird. They're gifted with other, in other ways. You know, they sing or they play the flute or they play the trumpet or they play the drums or, or they serve or they give or they organize or they're quiet and they listen. And they're gifted and their gifts are from Jesus. They're, they're, they're a team. How do you have a life? Well, I would suggest we have a life the way Jesus had a life. 
you come into this world to live the way Jesus did in order to find people for his name with whatever gifts God's given you. Now, that, now you say, well, I'm not really sure how that works for me because I'm not that outgoing Billy Graham type. Guess what? It's not your job to figure that out because the Bible says there in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 11 that he gave gifts to the church. And one of the gifts of the pastors and teachers and the elders of the church is to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. So if you're not sure, go ask your elders and say, say, how would I do this? And your elders will have an answer for you. You know how, you know how I know that? Because we meet regularly and we pray and we're doing what I'm going to tell you today. We are doing. We're doing it in a really humble way. In a real simple way, the leaders of the church, in their, own, in their own simple way, are obeying God in this. And I've seen them do it, and I'm listening to their stories, and I'm praying with them. We're doing it, and we're going to show you. So, so, so it kind of moves us to the second thing. But before I do, let me just remind you of a little illustration. And maybe if you're older like me, you'll remember this. There was a gal, a young gal years ago, that was a, there was a popular Christian writer and speaker. Her name was Ann Kimmel. Anybody remember Ann Kimmel? Ann is with the Lord now. But when she was young, she had a, just an amazing, like, infectious personality. And she wrote these books, and she used that style where she never used any capital letters, you know. And these books were pretty popular. One of them sticks in my heart a lot, and I think about it. And I want to tell you this story because it helps you to see what I'm talking about. So you won't kind of get freaked out. You won't turn, turn off your ears. You'll recognize, no, this is, the, this is something I can participate in with great joy and effectiveness. Ann Kimmel's, one of her books was called, I'm Out to Change My World. And all it was is a little book, and all it was was were an, stories and anecdotes about people that she tried to witness to. And a lot of times she, she you know, they didn't get saved and get converted. They weren't, you know, changed immediately. But she made them cookies, and she showed them love, and she sang them a song because that's what she did. Or she spent time with them. Or she sat by their bed when they were sick. And when you do that, what happens? You change the world because you change your world. And anybody can do that. And you can do that. Now, we're in a series here, of course, Treasures of the Heart. And the reason this is a treasure of the heart is because what I'm sharing with you in each one of these messages is about, about three different things that I've found in the scriptures that are a treasure to me. And this is huge to me. It's a treasure to me these things that I'm, you know, teaching you today, because they will help you have, no matter where you are in life, have a sense of eternal meaning and significance that your life really does matter in a very significant way. So that's kind of important. When we came to our neighborhood that we used to live in, and we're brand new in our neighborhood now, don't even know our neighbors' names yet. So like that's number one is to know your neighbors' names. When we went to our neighborhood that we used to live in, you know, 10 years ago, we'd been living there a couple of years, and we got a letter, an anonymous letter from one of our neighbors. And they knew that we were religious people, right? So the letter said, it was anonymous, and it said, what would Jesus do? And when I read the letter, and it had a series of questions in it, it was typewritten. Would Jesus play basketball after 10 o'clock at night while his neighbors were trying to sleep? That's what it said. <laughs> it said that. It said, would Jesus park his car across the, the sidewalk? Um, it said, would Jesus let his dog out barking and not bring him in early in the morning? What were the other ones? That's about it, right? I think that's it, right? Maybe three or four of those things. 
We only let our dog out one time. We'd come back for the whole day. We were tired. We forgot to bring him back in. He's out there yapping in the neighborhood. Um, the boys, they'd come home from college. They'd play a little basketball. Got past 10 o'clock at night. We didn't think that was bothering anybody. We parked across the driveway because we had 14,000 people in the family, and everybody has two cars. <laughs> so it's like, where are you going to park all, that, all those wrecks? You know, that's, somebody's got to park across, the, across the, the sidewalk. So at first, you know, you get a letter like that. You go, who wrote this? You know, yeah, and, then, and then after a while, you kind of look at all your neighbors kind of suspiciously. Like, I'm going to hurt somebody here. But then here's what occurred to me. It's kind of like that little voice you have, maybe like the Holy Spirit voice. And it's like, well, you did move there to be a missionary, right? You are a missionary in that town. And all of a sudden, I looked at that letter in a little bit different way. It's like the Lord had given me a special letter that told me exactly how to be a really good missionary and so I gathered the family. We had a family meeting, and I said, because we're missionaries, we're not going to play basketball after 10 o'clock at night. And because we're missionaries, we're going to shoot the dog. I mean, we're going to bring the dog in. We're going to bring the dog in, and we're going to not let lovely little Hazard bark. And some of you that were dog lovers just turned me off, and you're not going to listen to anything more I say today. We're going to bring the dog in and not let him bark, because that bothers the neighbors. And then and then also, we're not going to park our car across the sidewalk anymore. We got a neighbor named Paul, and I thought it was he, Paul who wrote the letter. So one day I go over to Paul, I go, Paul, did you write me a letter? Paul goes, whoa, what letter are you talking about? I go, you know, I got the what would Jesus do letter. It's like, don't do this, don't do that. Did you write that? Paul's an awesome guy. He goes, Pastor Pierpont, if I have something to say to you, I'm going to come over there, knock on your door, I'm going to say it to you, eyeball to eyeball. Somebody else wrote you that letter. A few, a few weeks later, Jeff from a, over here, he comes over and he goes, it was Bob that wrote the letter. I'm like, oh, <laughs> Bob. Bob sits in his garage down there, garage door open on a plastic chair smoking, and he's the one. So I tried to befriend Bob. It wasn't long after that, Bob had a stroke, and he went away to a facility, and he couldn't really talk. So I would go visit him and talk to him, try to show love to him. But it really helped me to think, I'm not here like other people. I'm here on a mission. I'm a missionary. I'm here, to, I'm here so that nobody in my neighborhood can ever say, nobody told me. I'm here so that nobody in my neighborhood can ever say, nobody showed me what it was like to be a Christian. Not the weird freaks like you see on TV, but a real flesh and blood, honest to goodness, decent human being, next door neighbor, bake you an apple pie, help you with your shoveling, listen to your stories about your kids, Christian neighbor. This, will, this is a treasure in my heart. Wherever you are, wherever you work, whatever you do, see yourself as a missionary and you will have meaning every day of your life. You will have significance every day of your life. You will have purpose every day of your life. Your life will be meaningful, exciting, and fulfilled and if you live like a missionary. Now, look in, in Matthew. I'm going to kind of, Matthew 28, end of Matthew. I'm going to tell you, a, show you another little place with a story about Jesus meeting with his disciples. So we have so far just two stories from the Bible about times when Jesus went away with his disciples. I do love this, that Jesus would find these beautiful places to take his disciples, like up into Caesarea Philippi, so they would have this beautiful place that they would be able to associate with this lesson. Now, in this lesson, it's a very significant lesson, because Jesus is going to meet with them, and this, what we're talking about now, is called a post-resurrection appearance. 
So now we're talking about something with freighted with amazing significance because Jesus has died, was tortured to death in front of his disciples. He was buried. Now he rises again. And then they're looking at, their, at each other and thinking, what now? And then one of them says, remember what he said? He told us he was going to die. And like we always argue with him about that. And then he said we were supposed to meet on the mountain back in Galilee. Jesus dies 80 miles south of there in Jerusalem, right? He's going to ascend shortly thereafter off off the Mount of Olives near near Jerusalem. But he's going back to Galilee where he met most of his disciples because he promised that after I die and rise again, we're going to have a meeting. So he dies. uh, He's tortured to death. He's buried. He rises again. He makes his way back to the mountaintop in uh, Galilee, overlooking the Sea of Galilee. And this is the scene now. And it's just, can you imagine how crazy significant this would be after having been tortured to death? You're going to have a meeting alive. Now, people are all like gathering. I personally believe that the post-resurrection appearance, there are about there are about 10 listed, 10 to 12 listed in the Bible. There were certainly more that happened, 10 to 12 listed in the Bible. I believe if you pay attention, the one that's in 1 Corinthians 15, where he talks about meeting with over 500 people, is the same post-resurrection appearance that we're reading about in what we're going to read here in the section we often call the Great Commission. The reason being, being outdoors on the mountain would be one of the only places where 500 people could gather. And Lois and I went to the Holy Land. We went to the mountain that I believe, Mount, Mount, Mount Arbel, which is probably the very place where Jesus gathered with these hundreds of disciples, right, after his resurrection. So what he's going to say is incredibly significant. It's loaded with significance. This is going to be important, right? Now the 11, this is in Matthew 28 and 16. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And in, in a beautiful understatement, when they saw him, they worshiped him. Which in the Bible means they got down on their face. But some of them doubted naturally, right? Verse 18, and Jesus came and here's what he said. Ready? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, like while you're doing that, I will always be with you to the end of the age. I am with you always to the end of the age. The behold word word should never be read over quickly. He's saying, here's a shocker, and you'll have a special sense of my presence and a special empowerment because I'll be with you when you're on that mission. You were made for that mission. You were designed for that mission. You were gifted for that mission. The reason that you have a sense of unfulfillment in your life is when you're off that mission. When you're on that mission, there's a sense of meaning. There's a sense of purpose. There's a sense of significance because you're doing what you were made to do. And he gifted you in a very special way. And now here he's commissioned or commanded his disciples to go make other disciples. And they did or you wouldn't be here right now. Thanks be unto God. Somebody went and made disciples and we're one of them. Isn't that great? You know Jesus because somebody told you about him. Somebody told my dad. Somebody told the person who told him. Somebody told my mom. Somebody told the evangelist that told her. I'm so glad. Now that's what I want to do. I want to obey. But but the question then often comes on, how would I do that? 
When I was a boy, my dad got this record from this guy. And he was a great guy in, in a lot of ways. He was kind of a salesman for Jesus guy. He was really good at it. And he had this record, it was a little LP record. A lot of you don't even know what that would look like, but kind of like a compact disc on steroids, this big old thing. It was like this, put the needle on. And, uh, and, and the, the record was like how to win souls, how to go soul winning. So when I'm a little kid, my dad sits me down with that record, and we just listen to that record. We practically memorized that record. I think it was called Let's Go Soul Winning. We practically memorized that record. I'm like eight years old. And I'm out there doing what my dad told me to do. I got a little map drawn in my Bible, and I've had little leading questions to ask people, and I'm buttonholing people. I'm kind of not letting them talk. I'm eight. Can you imagine how cute that would be? An eight-year-old kid is sales pitching you for Jesus, and he's not letting you talk. Like, we'll talk about that later. Right now, let's stay right here. And we're doing the old, like, hard-nosed sales pitch with a close at the end, and then you continue to close until they, like, give in, and they love Jesus forever and get genuinely converted, right? And that's what I did when I was a kid. I was on that. I noticed that a lot of, I led a lot of people to the Lord that, like, never went to church, never got baptized, never repented, but it was good, clean fun, right? I'm out there, and I'm hustling for Jesus. And that was better than not doing anything at all. And a lot of you, when you think about like, okay, obey the Great Commission, you get the idea of like, oh, we're going to listen to that record, then we're going to go out and we're going to confront people in ways that are really awkward. And yeah, maybe you will. Maybe you will, right? But here's what I think it's, it's, that I've come to learn. And I heard this, and Neil Veit preached here a few weeks before I came to preach. And of course, I listened to every word of that message. And I heard in him a heart of this, a heartbeat of this church, the way you think with a bit more sophistication about evangelism here. And a little bit more of an understanding that people are individuals. And they don't need to be talked to, but they need to be engaged in conversations. And before that, they need to be loved and they need to be prayed for. And so we thought through a strategy. We could just call it the Bethel strategy if we wanted to. How are we going to try to reach out? The guy with the record, he had a strategy. And it may have been flawed, but it was a strategy. And I will tell you, probably hundreds, maybe even thousands of people really did come to know the Lord because that man had a strategy, even if it was flawed. And we have a strategy here at Bethel. The elders, the leaders have come together and prayed about this. And 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 there are four elements. I mentioned it before. It was in our little monthly uh, newsletter, the epistle. I'm going to tell you it, it again now, and we'll go over it again in the future. Four elements of it. If you said to me, how would I get involved in an in in the Great Commission? How would I have a strategy to reach other people? I would say, well, why don't you have a list of people you care about that you're praying for? Like maybe you're a student. How many of you are a student? Raise your hand if you're a student. Raise your hand if you're a student and you're awake. All right. Now raise your hand if you're a student and you were just asleep. Good. Thank you. All right. And like, okay, so like other students, are there any other students that you look at, you just go, I was at Kidoba this week and there was a kid, you ever notice at Kidoba there's like one drink machine? It's like, it's the coolest drink machine since the creation of the earth, but there's only one. So you're going to be in line there, right? And there's a kid that walked up in front of me. I whistle wherever I go. It's like a habit. It's not because I'm impatient. It's because I'm musical, right? So, but people think I'm impatient when I'm with like, Sir, I'll be with you in a minute. I'm like, oh, I'm not impatient. I'm just musical. Yeah. Anyway, uh, I'm just looking at my wife, and she just follows men who whistle. Anyway, so uh, I was in line. Yeah, you didn't get that, did you? It's a thing we have. I whistle so she knows where I am in the store. She doesn't just go home with anybody who whistles, okay? It's, it, just so you know. All right, anyway, so I'm in, <laughs> This is like going to your choir practice. You know it is, right? If you want to be in a choir that people do this very same thing, come to James Choir Practice. We're, we have like seven browsers open all at the same time. I haven't lost my place in the story. I'm still in line at Kudoba, right? So the kid in front of me at Kudoba, I'm whistling, and he thinks I'm impatient. 
So he turns around and looks at me and he goes, sir, I'm sorry. I, I, I can't make up my mind. I, I don't know what I want. You can go ahead of me. My heart just melted for him. I felt like going, well, you're a people too. Just because some old big dude standing here behind you whistles doesn't mean you can't take your time and pick your drink. Go ahead. No, no. He says, I don't even know what I want. Something about that kid. I said, no, I'm not going to get a drink until you get a drink. You go ahead. Is there anybody in your school that just like touched your heart like that? You put their name on a piece of paper. Anybody on your blocks, like they look like they're going off to work like a vulgar boatman every morning and they're not happy? Put their name on your piece of paper. When your family, you got to have people in your life that especially need the Lord. And the Holy Spirit's tugging on your heart that maybe nobody else is ever going to get to them unless you do. And you could do, who in the world couldn't do this? Who in the world couldn't write their name on a piece of paper and tuck it in their Bible? And then and maybe could every day or put it on their little, uh, you know, electronic device. And then every day say to God, Lord, I want to pray for my friend Charles because I really want to make sure that he really knows you like I know you. And Lord, then here's what I, so that's number one is to pray. Now let's just take, take a, a name like Charles or Jim or Bob or, or whatever, Sue or whatever, and say, pray for them. Here's one of the things to pray. There's a lot of things you can pray. Pray that they would be enlightened, that their heart would be open, like Colossians chapter 4 and verse 1 says, pray that you would have boldness, pray that you would have an opening for the gospel. There's all kinds of things to pray. But right now, forget those and think about this one thing. Pray this, God, how you want me to love them? Now think about this. Who in the church, not, not everybody's Billy Graham, not everybody's a salesman for Jesus, but who in the church can't put a, put a name on a piece of paper and go, I'm going to care about that person, and I'm going to remember them to God, I'm going to say their name to God. Anybody here couldn't do that? No, see, we, we all can do that, right? Now here, who in the world, no matter how sick or how old or, or how limited your gifts may seem, who in this church couldn't say, God, how do you want me to love them? If I'm praying and God tells me, do plumbing for them it's not the lord because i don't do plumbing <laughs> like that he ain't gonna say to you do something you can't do unless he's gonna supernaturally empower you to do something crazy and then like you're gonna write a book about it we'll all read it you'll make a lot of money that'll be fun tithe you know right so so but 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 when you but when when you say to god what can i do lois sitting here and she's sort of quieter except when she's like private she and her grandmother was very very sick and dying and she says to me, because I'm outgoing, she says to me, I want you to go and I want you to visit my grandmother. I just want you to make sure she knows the Lord. And you know what I said to her? I'm not going to do that. And she looks at me like, what? I'm like, I'm the in-law. I'm going to sit with the kids in the car and you're going to go up and do that. And so she, tr because it was going to have a lot more power, even if it wasn't all slick and professional, right? I remember sitting in the parking garage in Kentucky with the kids and Lois going away, trembling, you know, to her grandma who had pancreatic cancer, was dying a very painful death. And, I came, and she come back to the car real humble with tears in her eyes and said, she's good, she's good, she knows the Lord. I asked her, I talked with her, you know. There's somebody in your life, there's somebody's on your block, there are people that you work with and their lives can be changed forever if you just pray for them, and if you just love them. We went to our other town, and we started doing that. And my son knew I cared about that, so he came home from work one day, and he told him about a fellow named Dennis. His wife was named Shannon. He said, this guy's kind of rough around the edges, but you really should stick with him. And I did. 
He started coming to our church, Communion Sunday, the first time they came. After Communion Sunday, he comes up to me and he goes, my wife didn't take communion. I'm like, okay. You're not supposed to tell on people in case you don't know that. He says, my wife didn't take it. He wouldn't mind me telling you this. My wife didn't take communion. I go, okay. She always takes communion, but the way you said it was like, you know, if you're not really right with the Lord, you should wait. So she waited. And I thought, you know, that's interesting because that shows she fears God. That's good. Shannon came to know the Lord. I got a chance to baptize her. Dennis, the two girls, I baptized all that family. And they grew in the Lord. And he helped me so much, didn't he, Lois? To get us ready to come here, he came over to my house, and he helped me. Lois made me shepherd's pie one night. Dennis got to it before I got home. I didn't think that was quite right, but anyway. <laughs> I came home. Dennis is sitting at my table with my daughters, with my wife. And he says, the shepherd's pie good. You're going to like it. And I sat down with him, and I, I looked over at him, and I said, Dennis, I just want to tell you how, how thankful I am that you helped me with this house. You know what he said to me? Then he goes, are you kidding me? Your family changed my family's life. Are you kidding me? Your family changed my family's life. Now, that was bad theology, right? Because my family don't change nobody's life. Jesus changes people's lives, right? But that's like, when I look back on my ministry, and I wonder if my life mattered, I want to hear that little voice going, are you kidding me? Your family changed my family's life. But I want to find more Dennis's, and I want to find more Shannon's. And I know you do too. And we can do that together if we pray for people, if we love them. And the next thing is to invite them. You know, we'll talk about this at length in the future. And then if we have gospel conversations with them. These are four things. Pray, love, invite, gospel conversation. But let's just start with praying for people. Let's, can you imagine a whole church, the elders are doing this. And every time we meet, the main thing we do isn't business. It, the main thing we do is we look at each other. We say, who in the church needs prayer? Who in the church needs us? And then secondly, who are we praying this? Not even in, not even at the table. And every one of the elders is praying for people who don't know the Lord. And every one of the elders is asking God to help him love people who don't know the Lord that aren't even in this church. I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. God is going to honor that. And people are going to go through that baptismal tank. And they're going to follow the Lord. Because doing what God says always works. And again, because we're something... But when you pray, can I ask a question? Does prayer work? Anybody here want to say prayer doesn't work? Okay, pray. Does love work? Oh, we know love works. Does it work to invite people? Like Dawn, remember the story of the gal at the beginning there? That was a long time ago, wasn't it? Yeah. And then the gospel conversation. We talk about when you talk to somebody and you give them the gospel, these things will work. But let me encourage you. You know, so I said there were three points. How to have a life, and that is invest yourself in the purposes of God. Have a plan to keep the command of God, the Great Commission. And I'm suggesting if you don't have a better one, pray, love, invite, gospel conversation. We'll talk more about that later. And then finally, just two encouragements and it will, that it will work. And that's the third point, that it will work if you don't quit. Two encouragements, why? Number one encouragement that I want to give you is, is this. And that is, um, you understand that um, the, the, the ministry of the gospel or the fellowship of the gospel is not an individual thing. It's a team sport. So you don't have to do it all yourself. And a lot of times people think, you know, if I've got to get this whole thing done myself, I can't. But it's not the way it works. We, we, we work together. And this is, listen to what the Bible says. John 4 and 36 through 38. He who reaps receives wages, gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps, like they're different people. 
They rejoice together. The person who planted and the person who harvests are different people. And they, and they both rejoice together. They're a team, get it? Uh, for for uh, the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labors. So in other words, you witness to somebody and you go, I'm such a loser. I didn't do that good. I'm not Billy Graham. I embarrassed myself. I think they're mad at me. Sometime later on, somebody comes along and reaps and they, you might even be there and, they're gonna, and that's going to be a part of it. And so, understand it's a team thing, and that's encouraging. It also says a similar thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, where they're talking about who's your favorite preacher thing, right? Who then is Paul? Who's Apollos? They're just ministers, servants, through whom you believed as the Lord gave to each one. I planted, Paul says, Apollos watered, but it was God who gave the increase. So that neither he who plants is anything, he who waters is anything, but it's God who's the one who gives the increase, right? Now, he who plants, he who waters are one. Each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. We are all just fellow workers, and you are God's field. We are God's building. These are two passages that teach. It's a team thing. So if you're quiet like Lois, or if you're loud like me, we both get to be a part of the team. If you're good at plumbing, you really are going to be useful someday. Right? Hey, yeah. Yeah, if you're good at electric, come talk to me, right? I mean, that's just the way it's going to be. If you're good at carrot cake, I want to know your name. I want to know your name. Yeah, and then if you're good at, you know, if you're, if you're a doctor, I'm going to need you after the carrot cake, right? And then all together what's going to happen is like everybody contributes, one plants and another waters, and then they read. What's the Bible say? They rejoice together. Bethel is going to rejoice together when sinners come to God because the team work together to see somebody come to know and love Jesus. That's pretty awesome, right? And then you'll sit on your porch, and when you're an old man, and you'll remember the triumphs of the gospel of Jesus. Jesus Christ. That's the thing that will make tears come to your eyes. That's the, the thing that will make your heart beat fast. That's the thing that will give you meaning and purpose and fulfillment and significance. And there's more. Just a, a little bit. Another reason to be encouraged is when you sow the gospel, the Bible says it's like seed. So you may not immediately get a harvest, right? With seed, it can lie dormant for a long time and it can like sprout later. You can sow a seed and like with your kids, maybe not be walking with the Lord right now. And that might be just breaking your heart. Or your grandkids might not be where they ought to be. And that just might be crushing you. But can I ask you, did you ever sow any seed in their hearts? Did you ever sow any seed in their life? And are you confident the Spirit can bring life to the seed someday? Or the faith can jump a generation and go to your grandkids? You have not lived for God in vain. You have not labored in vain. Your prayers are not in vain. This is the way God works. It's a seed. It's a team effort. And it's a seed, so you sow it, and it may come to life later. Let me tell you a little bit more about Dawn before I quit today. So Dawn, I was thinking about our church. We started this church down in Ohio. Dawn started to come to our church, and then her husband came. He eventually came to know the Lord. Babies came along, and their family grew. And Dawn was just a regular girl. She wasn't particularly beautiful. She wasn't particularly brilliant. She was just a, a solid gal. And she wasn't wealthy, and she wasn't powerful. She was just a regular gal that was a mom. But she was so excited about the church that she invited people. I look back on that church years later, and I got to thinking about where all the people came from in that church that we started. And I started thinking about people that Dawn invited after she came to know the Lord and started walking with the Lord. 
And I began to draw like this little schematic, you know, this little chart, who she invited, who they invited. And here's what I discovered. In a church of about 135 people, 54 of them had come to Community Bible Church directly or indirectly as a result of Don Joyner inviting them to come. 54 people in that small church. Years ago, we were playing football on Thanksgiving. Like we do, it's kind of a sad thing, but we're playing football on Thanksgiving over at my brother-in-law's. He, he pastored a church in South Haven at the time, and the whole family was out there playing football. When we got done, we were walking in, and there's a church there. He's a pastor, so we're, he was living in the parsonage. We were playing in the church lot. The church that's there behind the church was, a, was like a garden shed for the garden tractors and so forth. And right there at the base of the garden shed, like almost behind it in a really odd place, some flowers were growing. And we're walking in from playing football, and I say to Jim, why did you guys plant flowers there? I mean, normally you would plant flowers out in front of the church or, or by the front door. But these were planted like behind the church, behind the shed. Why do you guys have flowers there, I said. Jim, well, he said, that's a pretty sad story. He said, I was sitting in, my, in the parsonage on the couch one day, and the police showed up. And they showed up like with a SWAT team. And there were sheriffs and police officers, and, and, there were, and, and, and they surrounded the house surround the church property. Jim said, I went out, and when I went out, they said, go back in the house and stay down. There were armed, there were two young men that had, uh, that had uh, carjacked a car, and one of them had a gun. One of them surrendered, but the one with the gun went into the woods behind the church. And Jim said, he listened, and here's what he heard. He heard the police officers, and then after a while, they shouted, put it down, put it down, put it down put it down. And then the gunshot fired. That boy had taken his own life. Jim said, a few weeks later, an older lady came to the church and knocked on the door. And she said, my grandson was up here and he died here. And I wonder if you could please show me where it was he died. And Jim walked out behind that shed and he said, I'll never forget where it was because the blood literally stained the ground behind that shed where that boy died. And he said to that lady, he died right there. And she said, do you mind if I plant some flowers there? He said, no, that'd be all right. And I walked in for that Thanksgiving meal. I thought, you know, that stuff doesn't happen by accident. God wants his people to know people are just so sad and so broken and so needy and they're all around us, and they need what we have, and we want to obey God, right? And when we do, our lives will be very fulfilling, right? But imagine the great joy that comes to our Savior. Imagine the great help we give to other people. We'll be helping you with this. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us at, here at Bethel. We're about to enjoy a time of fellowship and help us to love one another and get to know each other and have a good time, but I pray that we would look around and see empty chairs and empty pews and realize there are people who need to be there and help us as we pray and as we love and as we invite and as we arrange gospel conversations that you would bring to us people who are far from you 
so they could know you and love you too. Amen.